Welcome to Paying Attention with me, Nicholas Gruen, and my friend Peyton Bowman. Uh, we make this uh, podcast every week, and uh, we often use it to try and think through problems live, as it were. Uh, that is, we don't necessarily bring you a completely considered and finished position, but we use the podcast to try and uh, try and shake the tree uh, to work stuff out. So uh, that's what we're going to do that with a particular thing today. And for that, I'm going to hand over to Peyton. Hi, everyone. Uh, yes. So today we are going to talk about a diagram that Nicholas shared with me uh, earlier today, uh, though he's been working on this for quite a while. Nicholas, how would you describe this? Is this a kind of you know, before we get into all the words on the screen, is it a, an image of society or an image of uh, an organization or how, yeah. what, so, what are we looking at here? Yeah, so these, so, so these, the two, there's two Greek words there, which, which we'll move on to. And, and I see those, I, I, people who've listened to me or read a fair bit of my stuff will be familiar with the word on the bottom, which is a segaria. And that is a political concept which I have discovered. It was a very uh, prominent political co concept about politics, concept about rights and all that sort of stuff in ancient Greek democracy. And my assertion is that it's more or less absent in our democracy. And one way to tell that is that we don't really have the concept, and I'll explain what the concept is in a minute. We don't, it's not a concept to which people appeal as a value. And the more I've thought about it, the more I've realized that there is another Greek, ancient Greek word that describes, which again, uh, describes a phenomenon that we kind of don't really even have a name for. Um, and of course, we have our own version, we, we have our own words and they refer to concepts which are similar, but they're not the same. And these are these two things are fundamentally absent from our democracy uh, and they and, and they are also absent from many of our organizations. And we I expect we'll talk a bit more about that as well. And then I've talked about two other terms there, and I haven't used the Greek terms. As you know, Peyton, I toyed with that and decided it was just being precious. Um, but those two terms are merit and fidelity. And I see those as, again, things that are um, very marginalized in our understanding of politics and yet absolutely fundamental to a flourishing society. And the diagram is an attempt to bring them all together. And I was quite pleased that it's my best attempt so far. So uh, that's a bit of a tease in a way, because I haven't told you much about the concepts, but that's, um, that's an introduction to the diagram. Okay. Well, maybe we can go through these terms uh, one by one. I think uh, Isegoria is a good place to start. I mean, what does it mean? You say we don't we don't have this word in our in modern yeah. English. So, so both of the words isegoria and pahis, pahisia are 
translated in English sometimes as freedom of speech. And Isegaria doesn't, uh, and, and Pahisia is a little closer to freedom of speech, our notion of freedom of speech, but still very different. Isegaria, the best translation, is equality of speech. And in ancient Athens, this was a tremendously important right, a tremendously important thing that anyone, no matter how lowly, and uh, other than slaves, of course, and women, and that's a separate question which we can get onto at some other st uh, at some other time. But any uh, male citizen of well, any citizen of Athens, no matter how noble, no matter how lowly, uh, had a right to speak in the assembly. Now we have rights to speak but we don't really have rights to be heard. If you're not very well educated and you're not skilled at fighting your way onto the television, then you, your right to speak, your ability to speak, your ability to speak and be respected insofar as what you say makes sense is much more constrained than somebody who is well educated and articulate and so on. And um, there's lots of dimensions to this, but in our politics, just think of this, that uh, ha over half the population of almost all developed countries uh, do not have university qualifications. 95% of, um, of their representatives have tertiary education qualifications. They use words differently. They're from a different class. Uh, and this is driving people crazy. And in fact, at a time when the left, particularly, but not only the left, at the, at the time, at a time when people are going on and on about diversity, the one kind of diversity, the, the problem with diversity in political voices that is tearing the world apart is the way in which those who do not have uh, as much education as others, those who do not have tertiary education, feel that the public conversation is not in their language. And if they try and express it in their language, they are ignored or often actually um, anathematized, often actually attacked for being racist, sexist, xenophobic, whatever, whatever you like. Uh, now, yeah. sometimes that language is clearly racist, an awful lot of the time it is not. It is a way of putting a certain consideration. And there, by pushing it out of the discourse, we, we then refuse to discuss all the issues, all the interests, all the values that people are trying to introduce into the discourse. So that's Isegaria, um, and I can talk about Pahasia if you want me to, or but I'll stop now and because you might want to explore that a bit more. Well, I think, you know, as we go through this example, uh, I, I think it might be helpful for me to, or go through these words to give, it might be helpful for me to give a kind of concrete example so yep. uh, that I think we can kind of follow along. Great. And I think, yep. I think a good, good example here is, um, for me, that, that I think everyone has some experience with is a, a school classroom. So in a way, in a school class, um, you have students who are all, uh, you know, they, they are all kind of have the equal right 
let's say, to raise their hand and to be heard by the teacher. Yep. And so on the larger, you know, and we can get into how this this kind of right is circumscribed by some of these other things that we're, we're going to talk about in a minute. But I think that that's a really simple way of understanding it. So everybody in the class, you know, in a classroom, there is a power dynamic where you have, you know, the teacher is, is supposed to be the most powerful person in the room. But that teacher is sort of responsible for hearing everybody equally, right? So, uh, so just to kind of just to get a quick overview of the concepts here. So how does that relate? You know, maybe we can talk about the next concept in this list. Uh, well, 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 what I'll do here is, so you, I think you've, uh, so, so is if you applied it to a classroom, firstly, I think I'd say it's not a perfect analogy in a classroom because in a classroom, there is a sense that there is someone in the classroom who is inducting juniors, inducting people who know less than they do. And so the teacher has a has a, a kind of given leadership role. Yeah. But Isegaria is nevertheless, you can imagine a teacher who, uh, I guess this turns up in pedagogy when you talk about things like, let's say, getting on the wavelength of your kids. You mm. can be a good technical teacher but you may not um, be a very good teacher at getting your at, at at looking at the subject from your kid's point of view or your student's point of view, and it is only when you can get your subjects to start relating to the material from their point of view and not simulating your point of view that the the magic happens that real education happens. I'll give a, I'd like to give another example because that's from education and that's not a perfect and that, that's not a perfect illustration. This next example is not a perfect illustration of the concept and yet it is a very compelling illustration of a, an, an analogous concept. In the 1980s I worked for Australia's industry minister Senator John Button and what was going on in the car industry was quite extraordinary because all around the world, the Japanese were being accused of dumping cars. In other words, selling cars into foreign markets at less than it cost them to make them. And there were all these accusations. And then as you became aware of what they were doing, you understood that they were really upending the way production, manufacturing production took place. And what they were doing was they understood that a good car manufacturing company, a good car manufacturing organization, in a, in a good car manufacturing organization, the most important people were the people on the line, the people, if you like, at the bottom. Why? Firstly, there were more of them. But more importantly, they were the people who did most of the work and therefore were the people who could bug fix best, uh, fix bugs and notice faults both with a particular item but also therefore with a process. And so what Toyota did was they, they basically built the company to empower those workers. And it's not, it's easy, it's an easy thing to say now, it's a bit of a cliche now, but they built the company to empower those workers to 
uh, to, to identify, to constantly optimize what they were doing themselves and with everybody else. And in fact, um, I, if you want to go to the fourth slide, we'll just show people, um, we'll just show people the stunning difference um, between automotive labor productivity from 1968 to 1992, uh, 25 years basically. And you and notice also that the US automotive labor productivity is on a different scale to automotive productivity in Japan. They both start at 100, so it's indexed to 100 at 1968. By the end of the decade, um, Japanese Toyota as an assembler of car parts into cars had got to, had increased their productivity by seven times, their labor product productivity by seven times. At the same time, they drawn all their suppliers into improved productivity. And then what you see in the US automotive market is that they do virtually nothing for over a decade because they can't believe that anything, it probably takes for about the first seven or eight or nine years for them to acknowledge that maybe they've got something to learn from the Japanese. And then something very dramatic happens, which is that the productivity of the assemblers rises and the car parts manufacturers who actually make more of the car, they make the brakes and the drivetrains and the differentials and the gearboxes and so on, their productivity doesn't rise at all. Mm. Uh, and we may want to talk about that later. So these are very, very different systems. And, and what was going on in, in, the, in the US? Well, basically, in the US, people thought that the most important thing was to have the best designers at the top, the best CEOs, you paid them a lot of money, and then you designed the factory, you designed the car, and then you treated the employees like lab rats in a Skinner box, basically. You paid them piece rates, which is for every, you know, bolt that you put on a wheel, we'll pay you 40 cents or whatever. And um, we'll give you almost no training. Toyota gave them 10 times as much training. And the training was largely so that they could, they could manage digital machinery that would measure how they were going and would enable them to strategize their own improvement. So this is a Segaria yeah. working, equality of speech, equality of respect, equality of invention on the line. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's is Segaria incredibly, I mean, it's one of the reasons I love economics, that you can make points of considerable subtlety and which might leave people wondering, well, is this such a big deal? And the answer is, to write it's a big deal. It's an absolutely massive deal. It's just quadrupled labor productivity over and above your opposition. Just, just, a, just a massive difference. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's very interesting how that played such an important role in uh, allowing Japanese car manufacturers and. Toyota and you know everyone in the supply chain to really uh, get the most out of out of the people who are working. Um, yeah, and it, it kind of all started with this idea that everybody, and I, I think to, to really like uh, kind of emphasize that everybody doesn't just have the right. I don't know to the same 
um, to speak. It's that they have the right, in a way, to be heard. I think you put that really, really nicely. It, it, as long as it, there was a certain structure to it, but yep. that the basic the basic guarantee was that everybody on the line had something to say, and so there had to be an, a system in place that was was at least listening to them and drawing those lessons upwards. Yeah. And, and and also orchestrating their capacity to cooperate rather than undermining it. Yeah. If you pay everyone peace rates, then if two or three people can cooperate, but one, but the peace rate. Let's say someone is being paid forty cents for every um, every nut they screw onto a wheel, but they need the people in the previous part of the assembly line to put the wheel on and to leave it at a certain angle so that it will be at exactly the right angle when it arrives. Well, they're not going to get paid anymore. So yeah. I'm saying to them, uh, can you do it this way? And it'll take you half a second more to do that. And they and, and there's no incentive to do that. There's no sense of, um, and, and again, it's such an insult to people to just say, we're going to pay you 40 cents a, a, a screw. Um, uh, and it doesn't work out, and the Toyota and Toyota were just dead against all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, the next, the, this vertical axis here. Yeah. Bahisia is usually translated as freedom of speech, and it is about. It is about. It's, it's certainly in that general. Uh, it is. It's. Um, uh, it talks about that sort of thing, but our idea of freedom of speech is is a right, and it is a right that is uh, exercised against those who might not want us to speak. And the thing about speaking is that speaking. There's not much point in speaking if somebody isn't going to not only listen to you in some kind of formal sense, but actually try to understand what the hell it is you're saying. And Pahisia, probably, uh, probably a better translation, a, a better grab, a better phrase to express it is, is the duty to speak truth to power. But it is more than that because it is the, because it can't, it is a, it, uh, now, Foucault, who I don't normally do, I don't read much Foucault because I can't understand it, frankly, but towards the end of his life, he wrote some stuff about these two words, particularly pahisia, um, and he talked about pahisiastic games. And by a game, he means a, a relationship between two people or two institutions. And so this thing called pahisia, is a, a bundle of ideas to do with the the duty to speak boldly, particularly to power, the right to speak boldly to power, and the duty upon power to listen and to try to understand, and indeed to try to suppress their pride, a knowledge that it's their pride or something like that that's likely to get in the way. So in a way, it's a beautiful compliment to Isegoria um, uh, because you can have all the Isegoria in the world that you like if you're living in a society that is that has some degree of hierarchy and we've never seen one that doesn't. 
other than hunter-gatherer societies, then you need a lot of effort on behalf of the powerful and the prestigious to make the effort to understand what is being said to them. And you need to encourage this parhesiastic game. You need to encourage people at the bottom to speak up. You need to encourage the people at the top to listen. Uh, and so that's what parhesia is. And what I might do is I'll give you the example of why I can continue the analysis with Toyota. And then we can maybe talk about bureaucracies and another, another quote that you've heard me on, on these podcasts go into at least on two occasions about I spent 10 years of my life lying. Uh, but let's talk about Toyota. So um, one of the problems with a bureaucracy, which is what makes a car, uh, because you've got people in management and you've got people on the line, is that people on the line are more junior. And if they report to further up the line, then it's very difficult. Uh, then they provide. Uh, then what's happening is two things: they're providing. They're being people are being judged by those levels above them, but they carry the information by which they will be judged to those people, and and that creates a, 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 that creates an incentive everywhere to uh, distort the information. Um, right now, when we're speaking, uh, we're hearing, rightly or wrongly, we're hearing that the Russian army is terrible at doing anything because of a lack of, his, well, Isegaria and Pahisia, which is that uh, every, all the troops are terrified to do anything wrong, and so they wait to be told what to do, but they are the people who should be working out what to do. Um, uh, just as just as a quick just as a quick um, aside here, uh, when Nelson sailed into the Battle of Trafalgar, uh, uh, which sounds like a very dynamic thing to do, it took most of the morning. <laughs> said that the enemy's over there, and then at sort of two or three miles an hour, they would uh, gradually move in to meet them. And there's a famous occasion on which the flagship is called the flagship because you put these flags up and it tells the whole fleet what to do. And Nelson wrote out and uh, what to put up on the flags just before the battle. And he wrote, England confides that every man will do his duty. And the flagman said to him, I can't, if, if you want me to use confides, I've got to spell confides out, whereas most of these other words require you know one or two flags together and we can all understand them so can i write england expects every man to do his duty and he said yes and then in in they went now the significance of this message is that nelson had trained his troops that once the battle started it was they were the ones who had to be making the decisions that he wouldn't even be able to get messages back to them properly. And so this was fundamental to what uh, this was fundamental to his victory at Trafalgar because he, this was the least hierarchically uh, rigid 
method of deciding what to do in the thick of battle. Um, now, take Toyota and take the Americans. If you're being paid peace rates, if you uh, can, can be sacked at any moment, you're likely, and, and, and you've got to report what you did that day, you're not terribly likely to say, yes, we, we, we met our targets, but I'm a bit worried that the quality of the work tended to drift towards the end of the afternoon. Uh, in other words, you're not trying to find problems to fix, you're trying to make sure nobody blames you. Now, the way it worked at Toyota is that um, the measurement of how, uh, the measurement of how things were going was done by the workers on the line. They were trained, given 10 times as much training to, work, to, to do their own optimizations. And so the information, and, and they also were given security, so nobody got sacked from these places. And the information that went up the hierarchy, it's what I call accountability through self-accountability. So the people on the line was seen to be the most fundamental kind of accountability. And that means that you can take all that information up to the top and there are no conflicts of interest in there because they're not, you're not going to get sacked for this and, and the people further up regarded as their problem to help people identify problems and solve those problems. And we're all kind of in this together. So this is a world in which uh, it's a bit less dramatic than the duty to speak truth to power, but it's the same idea. It is the same idea that the truth goes up and then it gets acknowledged and then the whole organism tries to work out how to respond to these problems that are emerging. Uh, so that's Pahisia. That's why, that's why it's so immensely important to uh, the way organizations work to say nothing of how our democracy works. And um, I can, if you think it's appropriate now, read you my, my favorite little, um, my favorite little quote. Yeah, but you, sorry, you go well, on. I, before that, I think I'll just I'll just summarize one really important point. Yes, I think that this, this is just you know looking at uh, uh, the, the situation with you know Putin is is interesting because a major narrative of this war is that Putin was surrounded by these yes men who didn't tell him what was actually going on, and so there was a real lack of ability to get information from even you know mar marginally below him up to his level. Yeah, whether or not this was function of the whole military, there were people at least at the top who were stopping him from getting this information, which I think well, is, we, is interesting given that because, they came from intelligence. Yeah, and partly because he doesn't, but, he will, if you give him that information, he'll sack you. I mean, that's the problem. Yeah. So, 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 so person, I think that so the there's person that. Who said yeah, him, but I think that. Okay. The person who said to but, Vladimir, but just, let's not invade uh, Ukraine, he got, he got marginalized. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, sorry, go on. Yeah. I think that these kinds of biases are, are common at, at this sort of level, but I think that that's an important point. So it's not just truth to power. There is this sense in which we're like the duty to speak truth to power, but there's a sense in which decisions uh, can be made at a lower level and acted upon and reported on, and that this, or, and that this, there's this kind of transparency of accountability that goes up upward. So it's not just saying, 
uh, you're doing the wrong thing. You're not, you know, the emperor is not wearing any clothes. It's, it's like the, um, it's like to take that particular, particular story. They're the two guys who are the tricksters who take, who make the fake clothes for the emperor, but they have no sense in which they're held accountable for reporting on their own activity or for doing the right, right thing. Right. So, yeah. so in that particular story, everyone is afraid of being made to look, look bad because they were tricked by these people on the bottom. But in, in a proper, let's say, situation, assuming these people were, were good actors, <clears throat> they would be required to somehow have a sense of responsibility for what they're doing at that low level. Right. Yeah. And that, that has to be, there has to be a sense of accountability and transparency that goes up, upwards up the chain. Right? Well, I would say that it, it, I would say that it needs to start with self accountability. That's a big thing for me. Yeah. So, so yeah, yeah, you have yeah. to have the self respect um, to want to be accountable to yourself. So there's a marvelous quote from Richard Feynman, the great physicist, who says, "In science, you must not fool yourself." And you are the easiest person to fool because you've got skin in the game and you, you've got a hypothesis and you want that hypothesis to be true or maybe you want it to be false. And it's going to be easy to convince you that, that, that you were right all along. That's called confirmation bias. So it, it is a really big deal for me that the, only, that, that the only way I know of trying to build a chain of accountability that doesn't go toxic is to try to build it on self-accountability and to put this in a different way in modern political thinking we like to economize on ethics uh, somebody once asked what does a market do uh, what does it economize on and, and somebody said it economizes on virtue in other words you can get a lot done simply through self-interest. And Alexander Hamilton, the founding father who everyone has now heard of, <laughs> um, talked about the importance of ensuring that the incentives on actors, political actors, are such that by trying to advantage themselves, they're also advantaging, they're also doing their job. They're also advantaging yeah. their community. But the, and that's fine. That's actually a very good principle except that it can never be a perfect principle, except that um, there's, always a, uh, there's always a mismatch between, certainly in a constitution, between doing your job as it was intended, as if there are no conflicts of interest, and um, doing the job that will benefit you the most. Uh, and and, and so our modern vocabulary captures this idea that we've forgotten about the idea that there is a bedrock ethics to all of this. And that is in fact, um, in the diagram there, uh, you'll see the word fidelity. And I didn't know, I, I, I had another thing there, which you can see is graded, which is merit, and it's sort of more of it up the top, and we can talk about that later. But I, I couldn't, work, I, I, I realized that a fabric like a cloth 
was the appropriate metaphor for fidelity, which is that everyone in this system, um, it's not that they're completely selfless, they, they're just ordinary people, but they, but they have a kind of bedrock fidelity to, to a mission, to a society. They can recognize a traitor, in other words. They know who a Benedict Arnold or a Quisling is, and that's about the worst thing a human being can do. So those people who are working consistently with that fabric and, and something similar can be said inside a factory, which is, you know, you don't, you, you, yes, uh, we've all got self-interest. You don't cut corners that are going to, you know, have the factory closed down for half a day next week. Um, so, so, but this is the thing that has been squeezed out of our political vocabulary which is that because we want structures, we want structures to de 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 deliver everything. And, and, and we've actually, I think, talked about this before, Peyton, this idea of accountability and particularly accountability to someone else is about the best feel-good world in, a word in politics we have. And yeah. that's wrong. And that's wrong because it has to be, there has, everyone has to buy in. Uh, if you are doing a job, if you're voting, if you're doing any of these things, well, voting, you don't, you're never made accountable for your vote, except that you get what you wish for, maybe. But in any situation, um, if you only do things because you're accountable, uh, and we might talk about Alistair McIntyre and uh, internal and external goods sometime, but if you're only if if you if we think we can set up a society in which we which will be a great society because of the 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 skill with which we've built these incentives and these accountabilities are so good that everyone just by trying to advantage themselves will be advantaging the the society while we're in cloud cuckoo land and that's kind of where we've got to in a number of we've got to the logical end of this idea that uh, that, that, that our political system has to try to acknowledge the importance of ethical behaviour, acknowledge people's desire to behave ethically as well as to as well as their self-interest, and I think we're a long way from that. And that's why I think these ancient Greek words are so important, and why the ethical core of parhesia and the parhesiastic relationship between the teller and the told is such a big deal. So <clears throat> when you have the, I think we used this term fidelity when we were talking a bit about, uh, I believe William James was speaking about this idea. Um, and faithfulness, uh, yeah. Faithfulness, you know, faithfulness, fidelity. Well, do you think there's a difference between faithfulness and fidelity? Uh, well, um, I think that um, I've quoted James to make a somewhat different point about faith, which is the faith that we have in each other. And the, the mm. person I'm thinking of, the concept, the sort of family of concepts I'm thinking about with regard to fidelity is the family of concept from the philosopher Michael Polanyi. Um, and, it's, and it's also... It's also Richard Feynman's idea. So Michael Polanyi is a, is a scientist turned philosopher, became a philosopher of science and a philosopher of society. 
And he's thinking very similarly to Richard Feynman, which is this need for us all to acknowledge fiduciary duties to, ev uh, to ourselves and to everyone. The idea that sci if you're a scientist and you just want a great career, you're not going to be much of a scientist because you ultimately science is this this order, this distributed order, a, a, an order of society, a, 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 an institution of society which has a it has an aim, uh, and that aim is to get to the truth, and that should trump everything. Uh, and if you are only after you, if you're only trying to burnish your career, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. And in fact, I may, uh, I may be able to, I'm sure I can uh, dig up um, a marvelous quote from uh, Polanyi about that. But, but this is the idea that if, if people, but, but think about politics, if there aren't enough people to say, no, no, well, think of Donald Trump's call to the officials of, Flo of Florida saying, find me another 11,000 votes or whatever, or whatever it is. Um, there, it's not possible to what we know this. Well, our experience is that, you know, the Soviet Union had just as good a Bill of Rights as the United States, <laughs> but rather less serious, rather less bona fide attempt less fidelity to that to that uh, Bill of Rights. So structures can help and they're very important, but so also is people's bedrock fidelity to the ethical obligations that underlie uh, underlie our life in, in many right. different ways. Well, to kind of go back to the Toyota example then, let's say that I'm, I'm working on the line and, of course, Toyota cars, they get... Uh, they get put on a market. They, there's a price set for them that's uh, determined by demand, supply, and things like that. But if I'm working on the line, maybe I'm not necessarily thinking about that, as you say, right? I'm thinking about, well, what is it that makes a car have good quality? Well, there's, of course, safety. Yep. There's things like durability. There's things like comfort, attractiveness, uh, you know, whatever they may be that I think there's this, probably a sense in which all those people working in that company they might not have a perfectly identical sense of what those things were, but in a general way, they sort of saw that in the same way. Is that is that a way of understanding fidelity in this case? Yeah, I think it is. Absolutely. I mean, another catchier way to understand it is that, as I understand it, Jeff Bezos has meetings in Amazon always happen with an empty chair. And that's a piece of symbolism. And the empty chair represents the customer. Uh, so whenever you hmm. get to a stage where you say, well, I don't know, I don't know how to make this decision. Uh, let's hear from Mr. Customer or Mrs. Customer. Uh, and that customer yeah. might not just say, oh, well, I want the best deal tomorrow. That customer might say, yeah, I'm happy to pay more because I know that over time I'll get a better product or whatever. But he's trying to say that um, he's trying to say, uh, Jeff Bezos in setting that up is trying to say that this is the underlying value structure to which we all serve. And a, an even yeah. better example, an even better example is the Andon cord. And guess where the Andon cord comes from? It comes from Toyota. Now, an Andon cord, uh, Toyota invented the Andon cord. And what it 
involves is you're on an assembly line. Uh, you know, it might be the you know the line might go through a huge factory like this, and if you see something wrong, you try and fix it as the line moves. And if you can't fix it, you pull the and on cord, and the entire factory stops. Now, mm. what that's doing is it is saying that that's an extremely costly thing to do. And it is being very clear that fidelity to the basic idea, the, the basic idea of doing it right for the customer is more important than mm. everything else when we have to consider trade-offs. And mm. Jeff Bezos has not picked up some aspects of the Toyota production system like the <laughs> Yeah. like the job security of his employees, but he has picked up the and on cord. So in the yeah. in the logistically complex things in Amazon, there is an and on cord or a digital and on cord and um and people and, and it's there. It's not there so people can pull it really. It's there so that in the absolute last resort people can pull it and therefore they will go to all this trouble to try and make sure that they don't have to pull it. Yeah. So it's a yeah. way of yeah. So so it's a way of emphasizing that that fabric of faith that or that fabric of fidelity that uh, underlies the whole operation. It's interesting. I think in a way, fire alarms kind of work that way for the general population. They sort of represent a sense of segoria. Anyone can press the fire alarm. Yes. And, yeah, it's uh, a nice point. Yeah, it's a very good point. Fire, and everyone sort of understands that we you shouldn't mess around with it. It's not a joke to you know, that's right. press it. Well, and that's an excellent example of how an institution and an obligation, uh, uh, an institution and a possibility, then comes with a with a, a kind of little ethical pack. <laughs> uh, yeah. There's a bunch of ethics that that applies to that, which is implied by what it is and how it relates to everything else. Yeah. So, I, I you know I didn't mean to cut you off earlier when you were about to read the quote uh, from the your, your you know your favorite quote, but I I, I do want to ask a little question before setting this up. Yeah. So, in the sense that I I like how in your diagram there's this you know this triangle and in a way, the structure of the society is round, and it, in, you know, it, of course, it encompasses the triangle. But also, the triangle, in some ways, gives it the circle its structure, right? In the sense that we have one point on each end, and so the circle couldn't be any smaller, right? or couldn't be yeah. any bigger than this triangle. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, maybe you can read that quote and, and talk about how it's a failure and of. Uh, parousia, but also how does it affect the fidelity of society as a whole? Maybe. Yeah, okay. So that would well, be a question. So this is a quote about science, and um, this is in an essay that I've written. If anyone wants to ask me for access to it, I'll give it to them. It's not been published. Um, and it's about, it's called, um, it's called Another Neoliberal, Another Neoliberalism, and it's about this guy called Michael Polanyi, who was a friend of Friedrich Hayek, and Friedrich Hayek was the chief ideologue of um, neoliberalism. I don't use the word ideologue in any kind of negative sense. 
Um, he was the intellectual leader of neoliberalism through the middle 20th century through to the late 20th century. And Hayek was mesmerized by this idea of markets as a distributed order. So he's thinking in somewhat similar terms that there are huge limits to what you can tell people to do. And he falls in love with the market as this distributed order where people make up their own mind what to do. And somehow it all works out very well if it's a if the market works well. Polanyi, and, and Hayek started in economics, Polanyi starts in science, and he comes to very similar conclusions, but he starts in science, not in economics. He's looking at science as a practice, not the market, and, and being a merchant in the market, being a, 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 a someone who makes their living in a market. And he thinks of science, and, and he, he's observed, just as Hayek looks at the Soviet Union and says, an economy can't work if it's run entirely by the government. And Polanyi is observing something similar in science because he's observing the, uh, the science of the Soviet Union and then the, science of, uh, then the philosophy of lots of left-wingers outside, uh, outside of the Soviet Union saying that science should um, serve political masters, if you like. Um, and, and he thinks this is disastrous. And he, he talks about um, that these orders, particularly science, must live in their own internal necessities. So if you think about the work of a scientist, the work of a scientist cannot really properly be overseen hardly even by a scientist because there's such detail involved. So you are, you're kind of setting scientists free and he calls this public liberty because you're not setting them free to go on holiday or do whatever they feel like. You're saying you do whatever you have to do because you, but you must be in pursuit of truth. And this is all very relevant to today because what's happened inside universities is Universities have more and more given themselves over to the idea that you can measure outputs. And the way we measure outputs is to count the number of journal articles that someone has published or something like that. And way back in the, I think it's the early 50s, can I check that? It's 1946, just after World War II, although he wrote these, these words during World War II. Polanyi's all over this because he thinks that scientists a, a subtle and ultimately fragile institution, and it's incredibly dependent on this fidelity of scientists. And if you tell scientists that really what matters is how they get measured by one university and therefore how much one university will be prepared to bid them from another university, he thinks it won't just compromise science, it'll actually destroy it. Um, and I think it's incredibly, uh, incredibly powerful idea. And this is what he writes. Those scientists, uh, so this is, a, uh, uh, I'll tell you when the quotes start. Those scientists' income independence influence their whole, quote, whole standing in the world will depend on the amount of credit they could gain in other, yeah, sorry. Uh, um, yeah, so, so they, though their income and their influence depends on the amount of credit they can gain with other scientists, they, quote, must not aim primarily at this credit, 
but only on satisfying the standards of science, the standards of science, the quote goes on. The quickest impression on the scientific world may be made by serving up an interesting and plausible story composed of parts of the truth with a little straight in invention admixed to it. Such a composition, if judiciously guarded by interspersed ambiguities, will be extremely difficult to controvert and may stand for years unchallenged. A considerable reputation can be built up and a very comfortable university post be gained before this kind of swindle transpires if it, if it ever does. If each scientist set to work every morning to do the best bit of safe charlatanry which would just help him into a good post, there would soon exist no effective standards by which such deception could be detected. In other words, we're depending on the scientists. This is a beautiful illustration of the importance of self-accountability. We're depending on these scientists to be self-accountable and to hold and and to write down at the level of detail hold you know some scientists who's doing work on a particular technique might have five or six peers in the world and we need them we need to support them all in attending to the imperatives of, of science which are the truth and have scientists careers as much as possible be the result of that rather than the other way around because this is a sufficiently fragile order much very different to a market this is a sufficiently fragile order that if you do that you really maybe are killing the goose that laid the golden egg so yeah i think that's a that's a very yeah it's a very important application of this idea right Indeed. Make sure that those scientists have the ability to speak, but to speak in, in a, you know, to, I don't know, in a way that may be controversial to, well, I don't know, what, what might be the, their, their situation, their jobs, yep. their communities, um, but in the service of that, of that truth, which would be the fidelity aspect of this. Right? Yep. So I think that's very interesting. And we, we didn't, you know, I think we're running out of time today, but, and we didn't get to merit. I think merit is, a, is it's kind of makes sense to me why it might be stronger at the top and maybe wider at the bottom, but that might be a good topic for another, uh, another, another discussion. So. Yep. That sounds good. I'll just give people a teaser that if they want to know, uh, if they want to know a, a beautiful place, which will illustrate the importance of Isegaria and Parhesia and the significance of merit, think of what makes Wikipedia work. And then um, we might give you some surprising answers to that in a subsequent discussion. Yeah, yeah you can comment on the video if you want with your ideas about how Wikipedia works. So uh, if, you're, if you're watching this on YouTube or if you're listening on uh, your phone you can send an email to nicholas i think or you can in gruen, you want to do it so. in gruen at gmail.com in which is in for nicholas g-r-u-e-n at gmail.com yeah. it'd be great to hear from some people who are watching these uh videos or listening to these podcasts and get some of, of your thoughts about the conversations too so all right well thank you very much nicholas it's great talking as always
Thank you. And I uh, will see you. Well, talk see again you soon. next week. Yes. Uh -huh.